welcome to the Ghostbusters Minute Extra bonus sode, <laughs> our review of the 1996 film Frighteners. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for supporting us. Uh, and as our gift to you for giving us your hard-earned cash, here is an exclusive review of a film that is tangentially related to Ghostbusters. Now, when we first did this podcast, Brady, one of our ideas to do the Patreon stuff was to talk about some stuff that wasn't Ghostbusters related, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we thought it might be a little bit redundant, and this would be an opportunity for us to bring our subscribers... Uh, Something a little fresh, something that stems off of Ghostbusters a little bit. A little fresh, a review of a 1996 film. Yeah. That's right. A little fresh, something that definitely lives in the same vein. Yeah, definitely in the same wheelhouse of like a horror comedy type thing. And Frighteners definitely uh, pays homage to Ghostbusters in a lot of ways, pays homage to the Evil Dead, all that stuff we're going to get into. So let me ask you real quick, do you remember, did you see the Frighteners when it was uh, in the theaters? I did, yeah. Um, I can remember going to see it while I was in uh, like Florida, and it was raining really bad, so you couldn't like go to the beach, you can really, I don't know, do anything. Um, mm-hmm. So we decided to go see this movie and uh, liked it a lot. It really stayed with me. I don't know. It's one that's always, I've always kind of had an appreciation for. I don't watch it all the time, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's one that I could go back to and always have a good time watching. It's just such a fun movie. Yeah. I think I saw this in the theater twice when it came out. I remember I went with my best friend at the time and a really weird story. I was actually probably, well, maybe it was probably the same time you were in Florida. I think I had failed a chemistry And I was taking chemistry in summer school. And for some reason, I was like 17 years old, and my parents went out of town, and they decided I needed a babysitter. So they got a 21-year-old woman to come over to the house and babysit me. And I remember one night, she got really bored. She's like, do you want to go see a movie or something? And I'm like, yeah, uh, this this looks pretty cool. So she went and got a bunch of her friends, and they were just like all these 21-year-old like sorority girls, and then me, like 17. And I thought it was the coolest dude in the world, like going to the theater, like, yeah, yeah, I'm with them. I'm with these college-age women seeing this movie. But You, I, you were either really cool or they were either Oh, no, really let me lame. stop you there. I wasn't really cool. <laughs> okay. I wasn't really cool. I was, I don't know, warden of the state by that point. So, <laughs> but, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, Frighteners came out in 1996. Now, when this came out, there wasn't really a whole lot uh, of horror comedies. I mean, I guess it's, it's strange because you see this as like an R-rated comedy with horror trappings, and the first thing I thought when I, when, we, when we went back and rewatched this movie is that this was definitely a product of its time and place. That, for, first of all, it's very hard to release R-rated movies these days because studios want to release everything PG-13, so it gets out to the widest audience possible. But this movie is definitely way more violent than I think you would have in, in a movie these days. You know, it's very dark. The humor is very dark. It feels kind of mean in some places, but it's, uh, that's kind of the tone of the movie. I, I think it definitely was like, a, it's a very nineties movie, you know, mm-hmm. very yeah. pre-millennial nineties movie. And, and that's part of what I love about it is it's, it's definitely like gritty and grimy in some places. And you definitely feel that uh, old school Peter Jackson feel to it. Yeah. I always appreciate that about a movie when it, it's like, it's like, you know, Hey, you can, Take it or get out. Yeah, like you, you can either yeah. deal with this movie and the fact that it is kind of ruthless, or you can get the hell out and go see uh, Milo and Otis. Yeah, it's weird that it is rated R though, because there's not really much in terms of like cursing or anything like that. Yeah, is there? it's it's still kind of got that kiddie feel to it. So I don't. Mm-hmm. I guess the the R rating just kind of comes out of the the violence. It felt to me like a Bugs Bunny cartoon in a yeah, lot of places. I can see that, yeah. Because the ghosts have these kind of like cartoon physics, like they're getting blown apart. And, you know, there's one part where Michael J. Fox turns into a ghost and he gets hit by a car and his bottom half like reforms and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. I think one of the ghosts gets hit in the head with a sickle. He like deflates like something out of like Roger Rabbit or something mm-hmm. like that, which. 
Let's definitely go ahead and address something right off the top. Yeah. This is a spoiler oh, absolutely. review. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, listeners, if you haven't seen The Frighteners, definitely go check it out and come back to the review. Otherwise, know that you're in for a spoiler-heavy review. I apologize for spoiling the fact yeah. that Michael J. Fox's bottom half gets hit by a car and <laughs> <I> shattered. Mean, <laughs> it's not like one of the big things, but yeah. it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so Frighteners was an original idea from Peter Jackson and his wife, Fran Walsh. Peter Jackson usually has a, a kind of a trilogy of screenwriters that he works with on most of the films. So Philippa Boyens, uh, I think it's how you pronounce her last name, himself, and then Fran Walsh, his wife. And I want to say, were his kids in this movie too? I don't know. I, I, wanna... know, I know that they show up in the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah, I was kind of trying to retrace in my mind. This would be 1996. Lord of the Rings came out in 2001, and there's a scene where there's three infants in this movie, and they're picked up and swung around by uh, 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 Bannister's ghosts. Yeah, Ghost buddies, yeah. I guess, are, are the Frighteners, are we calling them the Frighteners? Are they the Frighteners? I think the Frighteners, the term is just like overall. Yeah, I remember know? there's a part where the judge says something like, putting the Frighteners on people, but I didn't know if he was talking about the other two ghosts as they were the Frighteners. And he's like, oh, you're sticking these Frighteners on people or something. But, or maybe the Frighteners is just a term for like spooking people out or I'll something. i tell you what, if it was a reference to Michael J. Fox and his team, mm-hmm. his two ghosts or whatever, that is, if not, you know, a complete homage to the term, the Ghostbusters. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. So... There's there there is a scene with these little kids in it, and they look exactly like the little hobbits out of they do yeah out of uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Those kids that are like you know kind of oh whenever Bilbo's telling a story, which I guess would make their age mm-hmm. range. You know that was what two thousand one. This was ninety six, and they're definitely yeah. like top. So they'd be like four or five, or maybe even three by the time they're shooting yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So I don't know. This is something that popped in my mind. So anyway, Frighteners was conceived originally as a Tales from the Crypt episode, correct? Yeah, which Robert Zemeckis was producing that TV series. Yeah. And he Peter Jackson had come up in uh, New, New Zealand as a filmmaker who specialized in like splatter films. And they were all very tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. But, um, like Bad Taste and then yeah. uh, Brain Dead, Dead which Alive. I think was Dead Alive here yeah. in the States. Yeah, which this movie, it has a lot of... Um, uh, uh, story points that are also in Dead uh, in uh, Brain Dead, Dead Alive, mm-hmm. which... Well, he goes on to... I'm sorry to cut you off. No, 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 it's okay. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> He goes on to show some like some you know entirely different style of mm-hmm. filmmaker with this movie Heavenly Creatures, which is actually my favorite Peter Jackson movie. It's, it's a great one. It's so different. Yeah, man. and I it uh, makes me feel gross when I watch yeah, it, and I like that. Yeah, to to our listeners, it ain't anything like the movies that we have reviewed or, or cover for the most part. It is a very adult film. Yeah, it's it's about um, a, a matricide, a murder of, yeah, of a, a mother, story. a true yeah. story about two young girls who lived in Christchurch, New Zealand. And I think they might even still be alive to this day. I'm pretty sure one of them is at least, yeah. But it combines kind of him and Fran Walsh, their ability to tell a great story with the frenetic camera pace. But it's more of a drama. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's got these weird like extreme close-ups and mo- mobile cameras and stuff like that. When it, it works. It really works. Oh, absolutely. Um, it really has one foot in fantasy and one foot in the real world and completely works. Mm-hmm. Uh this is Kate Winslet's first movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, right. he's worked with a lot of great actors. Michael J. Fox, Kate Winslet, uh, you know, Ian everybody yeah. in the Lord of the Rings films. Mm-hmm. But um, the film Heavenly Creatures went on to get a Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay. And that's when uh, Robert Zemeckis kind of took notice of Peter Jackson, who was kind of a, you know, a big thing in New Zealand and said, OK, this guy definitely fits the mold for this television series that produced Tales from the Crypt. So I think I'm going to have him produce an original script and come in and make it like an episode. Yeah. So 
That's that, I they, think the script was actually something they were working on while they were making Heavenly that's true. Creatures. Yeah. yeah. They so they had the kind of the, the idea going from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then it comes along and, and Robert Zemeckis looks at it and says, hey, you know what? This is probably actually something I would be better suited for as a producer role and you can direct it. Yeah. He said, why make this a television episode when we can make this a full movie? This yeah. is like more movie than it is TV show. And that's where we take off. This movie has an 18 month long. Post. Uh, post-production, yes. which is insane because it had, up until that point in time, the most number of composite or digital effects shots in any movie up, up until that point. And this is after, like, Jurassic Park, which, yeah. when you think about it, Jurassic Park really doesn't have a lot of effect shots. it's something like 14 minutes worth of CGI It, it or uses something. them very sparingly, and, and to great effect, too, because that story is really a story about the people mm-hmm. and the survival situation. So, in, in terms of the visual effects in this film... They're they're a little dated because it was when CG was still kind of in its infancy, right? But um, so that's that's fine. And, and the only place I think it really lags is the um, the effects on the Grim Reapers uh, cloth, you know, because that, at that yeah. point in time, that was really probably still a kind of a simplistic uh, ge- geometry on that on that design. Which but, I'm I'm willing to let slide because it's something of an otherworldly nature. Yeah, so it's yeah. going to have a fantastical. It, look. it doesn't look bad. It just sticks out because the composite shots for the ghosts in the movie are fantastic. How you can kind of see through. Oh, them, but yeah. it's almost kind of warped as if you're looking like through a glass of water or something like that. This also feels to me like a movie that is, they almost made, and I know this is not why they did it, uh, but it also feels like a movie that they made just to have fun and experiment and develop the motion control technology that we had seen through other Zemeckis films. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's some moments like where Michael J. Fox is talking to the ghost of the um, workout nut, I can't remember his name, uh, in an alleyway. And all of the camera movement is so subtle, you, yeah. it just goes right right by you. Yeah. And it's um, that's a testament to a filmmaker who is pioneering special effects and wants uh, wants the special effect to go unnoticed. And it's it's strange that Peter Jackson goes on to um, make this series The Hobbit, which is like, you know, a whole lot of CGI that's in your face and almost kind of like a look at me. Type, type. Well, uh, you know, we don't know how much of that was studio mandate, too. You know, it's, true, it's yeah. you know, special effects have come a long way from where they were in Lord of the Rings, even where that movie kind of used them sparingly as well. I, I, although I will say the Balrog and the Cave Troll are like perfect living creatures. They oh, yeah. look completely real to me. That movie relied heavily on a lot of like makeup. Uh, because it was, I guess, maybe quicker to shoot. You know, there wasn't that long... Well, I guess there was a long production schedule on it. I don't know. But yeah, The Hobbit, I would agree, kind of goes overboard. What was it? Bolg? Was that the character's name? Uh, the white, uh, The white orc. Well, the the yeah. one-armed white orc. I think it was Bolg. And Bolg, to me, I, I heard that they rotoscoped over... Uh, another yeah that's true yeah, yeah and I was kind of when I saw the original stuff I was like well this looks more like the orcs that were in Lord of the Rings and I kind of preferred those so you know uh, varying you know differences in that but we don't know you know, whose decision that was on that uh, so this was like Weta Digital's I think first uh, CG movie yeah know? I believe so um, and it, it works for the mm-hmm. most part you mm-hmm. know uh, I do want to say that um, you know we've got the Frighteners uh, we've got Ghostbusters we've got all the stuff that predates that. And the father of the uh, horror comedy is definitely James Whale. And this movie, I think, more so than Ghostbusters, kind of lives in in that perfect balance of scary and, and funny. Uh-huh. And uh, I send up to all that as well. Yeah. So. It's definitely got a lot of, um, like, American Werewolf in London, you know, mm-hmm. John Lewis yeah. movie, and then also a lot of influence from Sam Raimi, which is something I was I was thinking about while I was watching this movie. Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi both have a lot of similar uh, camera, yeah, absolutely. camera work. You know, have you seen the Evil Dead TV series yet, Ash vs. the Evil Dead? No, I haven't. It is fantastic. You would love it. It is hilarious. It's nonstop comedy. It's, it's great. So anyway, um, 
but when you see a Sam Raimi camera zoom in, you know, that kind of like, what, what, what is the name of that camera move that he does where he, they, they put the camera on a board and like two guys run with it or somebody <laughs> runs with it like through the forest or something like that. I'm not sure. There's, there's some name for it that I, I can't, I can't get right now, but Peter Jackson does kind of a similar thing, but I guess because of the lenses they use, Peter kind of uses this more of like a fisheye or like a wide angle lens. So things mm-hmm. are kind of like distorted at the side of the camera. You can tell when you're seeing a Sam Raimi speed camera through the forest or when you're seeing a Peter Jackson, more mobile, almost like yeah. ghost vision type camera. You so know? for two very similar filmmakers, that's yes. when you can differentiate them. They're and, very distinct, even yeah. though they have that one style that they both kind of use. It's, you know, when you see an Evil Dead movie, you know it's Evil Dead. When you see Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings camera zipping around, you can tell the difference. Have you ever seen Forgotten Silver? Yes, I have. It's Forgotten Silver awesome. is hilarious. It's yes. such a fun idea. Can you tell the listeners what it is if they don't know? Yeah, it's a uh, mockumentary that, <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, aired on New Zealand television back in back in the 90s. It might have been like right after or right before The Frighteners um, that claimed that film, the, you know, cinema was actually created by a filmmaker in New Zealand, but none of this had been revealed until right now. And Peter Jackson was the documentarian who was letting all this out, all this information out. And the film has all this credence because it has New Zealand uh, celebrities and even like Leonard Malton giving it just complete believability. And I think a lot of people in New Zealand believed it and they thought that this was a real thing. If you can find it, definitely check it out. I heard there was some public outrage because people were like, wait, we invented cinema, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a really funny scene in it where uh, the guy, the, the, the supposed filmmaker who invented the camera or whatever, is going to some island country. It might have even been around New Zealand and he's getting photo- these beautiful nature photographs, but the island women kept stepping into frame and they were all topless. So instead of him being like regarded like, oh my God, you invented this, this uh, you know, you invented the documentary, you invented the the camera who was instead sued for pornography because he kept getting like topless yeah. women and everything. Yeah. Uh, it's not quite Nanak of the North, but, um, but anyway, so to get back to the movie, uh, it had been a while since I had seen this. And I remember the last time that I had seen the Frighteners for some reason, I came out of it with uh, a less than uh, glowing mental review of it. And I don't know if it was the time that I was watching it then, maybe it wasn't a bad mood or something like that. But when I watched it again this time, I absolutely loved it. I thought, I think I got yeah, I was in the right mindset, and I was like, this is like a live-action uh, cartoon more than anything else. And I think for watching a dry humor improv thing like Ghostbusters for so long here, where we're watching minute by minute and our lives are kind of saturated by Ghostbusters right now, I really appreciated the over-the-top comedy that this thing brought. And nothing in this movie was more over-the-top than the FBI agent. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. What's, what's the character's name? Uh, Lieutenant Dammers. Agent yeah, Dammers. Agent Dammers, who's played by Jeffrey Combs, who, uh, if you have, have you ever seen Reanimator? No, I haven't. Reanimator's so good. So he was in Reanimator. I want to say he was in another H.P. Uh, Lovecraft movie called Dagon, by the same guy who directed. Yeah, he's always playing the, the weirdo, the oddball. And the Frighteners Special Edition DVD has a four-hour-long making-of documentary. It's fascinating. I, Peter Jackson is all about, you know, the behind-the-scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. And... And Jeffrey Combs does some interviews in it, and he just seems like the sweetest, most mm-hmm. compassionate, down-to-earth guy. I was like, who is this? This is not the kind of guy, this you know, the characters this guy plays, but hey, actor. He, he so. goes all in in this movie. Yeah. Just, you know, I was thinking, too, like, what is it with the weird occult FBI agent that's kind of a trope in Hollywood? You know, we've got uh, Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks. Uh, we've got uh, you know Fox Mulder on the X-Files, and then we have you know, Agent Dammers here in The Frighteners. There's this weird kind of trope of, uh, of FBI agents who are obsessed with the occult. And I don't know if there is an actual like uh, division within the FBI that kind of investigates stuff like this, like the Mothman or whatever, but it seems like 
it's it's a weird, oddly specific thing to have to have these people that are investigators and you know they have to deal in like real world forensics and things like that. Yet they're also believers, true believers in the occult. Yeah. But um, so he does some really great stuff. There's an an, an interview scene where he's re, where he's introduced and he's recounting the murders, uh, or, or at least the death of Frank Bannister. And he's going. He's got like a timeline in his mind. And he's going like, you know, oh, 800 hours, this happened. You know, and he's kind of like going through it as if it's actual like for like files that he's read over and over. So yeah. he's able to bring like this weird cartoony, over-the-top, chewing char- che- mm, scene-chewing character <laughs> into the movie. Uh, and even a movie that's over-the-top as this, he just took it like uh, to the next level. Yeah. So I and really enjoyed watching it. It's, it's uh, you know, more validation of the point you were making earlier about how this film is a live-action cartoon mm-hmm. in, in many ways. Yeah. So, what do you think about um, all the the composite shots in this movie of the, of the ghosts interacting with with Frank Banster? Completely works. Yeah, it's fascinating uh, how they were able to take you know a performance or a scene that was shot with let's say Michael J. Fox reacting to nothing, mm-hmm. and then months later shooting these ghosts and having them work in the same uh, camera movement, which yeah. comes from you know this thing that Zemeckis and Peter Jackson have just got down is mm-hmm. this uh, motion control Vistaglide camera system. Um, the timing is a little bit off between some of the, you know, some of the lines and everything, but I mean, come on, that's to be expected. I, I, I didn't really notice any of that when I was watching. If, if anything, I was watching like the, uh, the eye line, line of sight type stuff. Yeah. Which, which is, is also off a little bit. Yeah. But it, it never, it never really distracted me from the movie, mm-hmm. but, but I mean, that's better than anything I could do. So one thing I really love about this movie is the script. Uh, because it never gives you a moment to think about too much. It's just constantly throwing a new nemesis or yeah. a new situation in it. It's it's really it never gives you a moment to breathe, and it's kind of like this rapid fire uh, comedic style uh, that is you know like there's a scene at the end of the movie where they're in the church. Uh, no, wait, it's before that. I'm sorry. It's whenever Frank is having his outer body experience, which I think she freezes him and slows down his organs so she can resuscitate him later. That in and of itself is a crazy concept. He's got to go out, have an outer body experience, go chase down the Grim Reaper, and you're kind of preparing yourself for this big action sequence. She closes the freezer door, and there's Agent Dammers. Like right there. Yeah. And he has an Uzi now. And this movie just constantly does that. He's like, sure, I'm an asshole, but I'm an asshole with an Uzi. Yeah. <laughs> but this movie is constantly like like just cranking up the weirdness, cranking up the, the, the bad situation that you're in. And you think for a comedy, usually there's not something like that. It's just kind of like it's hills and valleys of, you know, like let's get to this next thing and here's the next challenge. But this one's like, here's the next challenge. It's the top of the hill. Oh, by the way, there's a, another top of the hill. Oh, by the yeah. way, there's a volcano. You're on a volcano. <laughs> you know? And there's so many, so few. Uh, actors who could, you know, hold all of that together and mm-hmm. keep that one foot in reality and one foot in the, you know, extreme. And that's Michael J. Fox. I mean, yeah. nobody has charisma like that guy. Yeah, yeah. And if you take a movie like, let's say, Back to the Future, um, that series, he's able to keep things light and funny, but still have that dramatic intensity. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it applies here as well. Yeah. No, he. It's a real shame that this was his last major role in yeah. a film, uh, yeah. because as we know, he started Spin City after this and was on Spin City for several years, <laughs> and then uh, developed early onset Parkinson's. Has been a, uh, a proponent of Parkinson's medication and brought a lot of light to that uh, horrible affliction. 
but uh, what he has he done? I think he had the Michael J. Fox show, which yeah. was on the air for just a little while, and then he did a, ser- a season-long uh, arc on Curb Your Enthusiasm, I believe, as well. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. He, he had, like, appearances in other... Did you ever see the um, TV series with Dennis Leary? Yeah, he had a uh, little guest spot on the show Rescue Me with Dennis Leary. That mm-hmm. was uh, pretty good. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's a shame you don't see him anymore, but, you know, like you were saying, he has done just, you know, so many great things. Leaps and bounds with uh, Parkinson's research and, you know... Just raising awareness and everything, yeah. but yeah, he's uh, great in this movie. I can't imagine anybody else playing this playing this role. So I thought there were a few clever uh, homages to Ghostbusters in this as well, like his scene where he goes to bust the ghost at the house. Yeah, where he has this yeah. really bizarre like radio microwave looking oh, thing yeah, that he totally. plugs in, and he's walking around with holy water as if to mm-hmm. like wrangle the ghosts. You know, like so all of his you know utilities are this kind of like old fashioned uh, homemade stuff. Yeah, that the Ghostbusters had you know is very similar, very similar. It reminds me of a scene in Lost where um, uh, I cannot remember the character's name. Uh, his father was Marvin Candle when they went back in time. He was the guy who could see ghosts or could like read the minds of dead people. I guess Hurley saw a ghost, so he could kind of, like, detect ghosts. Do you remember the scene where he went and busted a ghost in a flashback? So he goes to this lady's house, and she's like, my son is dead. Uh, He died recently. He was killed. He was, like, a thug or something like that. So he goes up to the kid's room, and he pulls out this weird, like, vacuum cleaner-looking machine and turns it on and just kind of walks around and acts like he's talking to the ghost, and then he finds out the ghost had hidden a bunch of drug money from some gang members, and he steals some of it. So I love this kind of like homemade ghostbusting stuff. Do you remember in Insidious when uh, the lady who's the medium brings over her two guys who work with her yeah, and they're using yeah. like a um, magic vision uh, thing to kind of like see the yeah. ghosts and stuff. I love that just kind of like homemade because there's no science to this stuff. So if someone thinks like, oh, my water gun that shoots holy water would yeah. work on a ghost, like, yeah, who's to say no? And that's the idea too is like all of his stuff is bullshit. So it's, you know, yeah, that's sort of the idea. Um, but getting back to the performances, I think the best mm-hmm. thing about this movie is John Aston's performance of Judge. Oh, Judge, yeah, he's great. <laughs> John Aston, now the father of uh, Sean Aston right. of uh, Goonies and uh, Lord, and Lord of, the of the Rings. Yeah, um, he's playing Judge, and I mean, you can just tell that he knows what he, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, the performance is hilarious, and he, I think, does the best uh, acting. The you know mocap act. It's not mocap. He does the best, like. Um, acting that is obviously shot months apart from, say, his interaction with Michael J. Fox, and it yeah. is seamless. Yeah, it's so good. All the ghosts in this movie are kind of like caricatures. Uh, I'm sorry, caricatures of what they're supposed to be. You've got you know the the '70s guy, the disco guy, uh, and then like the 1950s like Poindexter nerd type. So they're the playing a ghost in this movie had to be a lot of fun because you could really go over the top. Yeah, with even Jake Busey as the killer. Uh, was that Jake Busey? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's so, awesome. I always get him confused with the guy from Scream. Who's that? Uh Skeet Ulrich? No, the other guy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I'm talking about? Villain. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Matthew Lillard. That's right. They look the same. One yeah. thing I think is it's funny and it's ironic that uh Robert Zemeckis was the producer of this film is that in Back to the Future, when someone goes back in time, they're going back to that same spot they're in geographically and not ending up in some other part of the world like so many other time travel movies did. Well, mm-hmm. in this movie, there's something similar done in which the ghosts are always going to be wearing the same clothes that they were wearing when they died. Yeah. They can't break out of that. Yeah. And, uh, and they're in various states of decomposition of which their body would be too, you know, which is weird yeah. because like the guys from the 70s are probably 
be in a rougher shape than he actually is as a ghost. Uh, but the judge is completely falling apart. His jaw is coming unhinged. His spinal column is showing, which is a really cool effect where his like upper body is oh, like yeah, a skeleton. Yeah, that is cool. I've got a soft spot in my heart for uh, horror Western crossovers. I don't think there's enough people that have delved into that, but yeah. having like the half skeleton judge come out, you know, shooting at everybody. Mm-hmm. What happened to the dog? He kind of disappears, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, you don't see the dog again, I don't think. Yeah, for some reason, I figured that was his dog. I don't know why, but yeah, so that, um, a lot of that stuff was uh, makeup done by uh, Rick Baker, the uh, the judge's stuff. And I think like the jaw stuff was composited, by, uh, composited on by Weta Digital. But uh, it's great makeup, having that jaw kind of unhinged and yeah. sticking out the side of his head. It was really kind of cool and creepy looking, which this movie has a lot of cool and creepy stuff in it. What did you think about uh, the idea of having the actual like Grim Reaper in this movie? It's awesome. Yeah. It's what, so cool. I mean, what, what better way? This movie that deals with dying and death and the inability to... Or the ability to uh, come back, you know, who is the primary character in yeah. that type of lore but the Grim Reaper? Yeah, I think they, they call him the Soul Collector in this movie too, don't they? Something I think like that's, that, yeah, yeah. The actual name they give to him, which is, is funny because he, I think he only collects like one soul in this movie maybe. He like reaches into somebody and pulls out the soul and it's like shining in his hand. Do you it's, remember it's that a part? few, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a few people, but um... You know, I think his number is up in like the 40s or something like that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we don't see all that. But to, to know that that's his number is just yeah. makes it all the more threatening. Okay, so his scythe, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Yeah. When he bangs it on the floor and it, it swings out. out like a switchblade. What is that? Is it just like a switchblade type I, thing? It's or? just for visual effect. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not a real thing that actually exists. There was this video game called Bloodborne that came out a couple of years ago. And you had the same thing. You just had this kind of weird looking stick thing. And you bang it. And all of a sudden this giant sickle like blade would pop out of it. And you'd, you'd kill people with it. So that was it, really cool. It's very cool. Yeah, it's very cool cool visual and up until that point there haven't been really uh th- that that idea of like the the formless like uh cloak you know that just kind of floats mm-hmm. with arms sticking out of it is 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 scary anytime i see it in something you know like yeah clothes the, without anybody in them that yeah the, the, so the depiction scary. of like the robe like that with this kind of the void you can see through where the head's supposed to be and uh, I don't think there'd really been a movie that had had the had the the idea of a Grim Reaper as a bad guy. And I remember when this movie came out, like they kept the whole mystery thing about the serial killer back from the dead and all that kind of in the background. In fact, they really do a good job of hiding that in this movie too. And I'll get to that in a second. But I remember seeing all the trailers for it and stuff, and I was like, oh, this guy who can see the dead, and then you know, the Grim Reaper starts chasing him around. Like that was a really cool concept for a movie. And then you get into it, and it's actually this murder mystery. Uh, which is with uh, all these levels of intrigue, like, you know, is the mother the actual killer? Is the mother, you know, controlling the yeah. Grim Reaper? Is the Grim Reaper... You don't even really catch on that the Grim Reaper is uh, Bartlett from Beyond the Grave, Charlie Bartlett, until the yeah. end of the movie. And, you know, that's awesome that they have these little things that keep popping up. I think one of the best things about this movie is the... I think one of the best things about the movie is its mystery plot, which keeps unraveling, mm-hmm. and there's something new... And there's something new every, you know, 15 minutes or so. Yeah. Some new bit of the mystery, uh, which I think is really great. It's not just a scary movie. This is a mystery movie as well. Yeah. So did you catch uh, Peter Jackson's cameo? I did, yes. Uh, I I caught Peter Jackson's cameo. I'm sorry, I had to say something real quick. Yeah, sure. The name of the killer in this movie is Charlie Bartlett. Yeah. Charles Bartlett. Charlie Bartlett was an Anton Yelchin movie that came out a few years ago about a kid who sold drugs to his uh, high school. Yeah, I don't know why. For some reason, I kept saying Charlie Bartlett or hearing it in my mind. I'm like, that can't be right. Why would they name it? Anyway. 
yeah, yeah. I saw Peter Jackson is the punk rocker looking dude. Yeah, he um, that makeup that he's wearing actually took a really long time to put on and take off. Well, the day that they shot his little sequence was the day that all the investors came to set mm. and who didn't really know what he looked like. So they get there and they see here's this dude who's directing this horror movie. Yeah, I can only imagine what they thought. Have you seen that scene in Lost in La Mancha when the investors show up and they're talking to Johnny oh, Depp yeah. and he's in all of his makeup too? Because mm. that's the thing you get all this money from these investors and you know they want to come by the set and it's like well we got to show off you know what the reason that they put money into this movie so let's you know trot him out and meet Johnny Depp and he's very gracious to them he's like oh hello how are you and meeting them and everything but like he's also just been soaked in water like eating a raw fish and stuff like that yeah so yeah it's, it's a pretty funny scene oh, but man. yeah I can imagine being the director of a movie like this and having the people who put down 26 million dollars to yeah. make this movie come by and, and you're like oh this is the guy in all the makeup so um how, what did you think about the setting for this movie being shot in new zealand i was about to ask mm-hmm. what do you think the location is uh it's california it's it's is a it, town called looks like on. they kind of mid uh western or not midwestern um kind of northwestern uh northwestern yeah, yeah. yeah. kind of like uh, uh portland or portland. something like that yeah Oregon, that, that, that's yeah, kind of like where that. i thought it was but then uh the further i watched the movie it's it's they they have california license plates on the car oh, do so they? i forget the is it the fountain something or other i'm sorry i'm looking through my oh, notes here um, for the name of the so yes yeah, so all the cars have california license plates on them so it's it's some made up town in california which uh you know, this movie, I mean, maybe North California, I guess around San Francisco and places like that, you could probably pass this mm-hmm. off as that. Yeah. yeah. I love the, uh, towards the beginning, very, very, very Peter Jackson um, is, I've really enjoyed the moment early on where Lucy is watching the, the video that kind of gives a history about Charlie Bartlett mm-hmm. and his... Uh, Charles Bartlett. Charles Sorry. Bartlett, yeah. excuse me. Yeah. Char- Charlie Bartlett. Yeah, Anthony Elgin. I love the part where... They talk about him being in the electric chair, and then there's that cheesy effect. Yes, that, yeah. Which I, I think might actually be the first time anyone's ever said the words "I love" and "electric chair" in one sentence. But, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's a really funny cheesy effect that you would see on like a, a nighttime news type mm-hmm. of report on somebody yeah. like this. Uh, so yeah, let's well let's talk a little bit about this movie in in reference to Ghostbusters. We said earlier there's a, at least one homage with the uh, Ghostbusting equipment that he has. There's another one. Did you catch it later on? Good shooting text. Good shooting text. Yeah, yeah. which you know is one word off from nice shooting text. Now, granted, that is a line that comes from like old westerns and stuff, and that was where Bill Murray was getting it. But come on, yeah. So, so the scene is for for those of you who who might not remember it, the two of the ghosts during an uh, ancient Egypt, uh, I guess, exhibition at the local museum. Two of the ghosts grab a mummy and start walking it out of a (laughs) out of a glass case, and a bunch of cops start shooting at it. They're trying to distract attention away from uh, uh, Frank Bannister. So the cops start shooting it, and uh, the the uh, '70s ghost says something like, uh, "Hey, oh, nice shooting, Tex." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, as far as like a horror comedy goes, do you think this movie achieves both of those aspects? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, better in any case, uh, better than most cases of movies I think that try and do this. This is um, one of the better cases. Yeah, yeah. If, definitely for the horror aspect, I think they went full bore on mm-hmm. it, and uh, definitely. Definitely pays off. It's 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 it has a lot of scares in it. It's got you know? a lot of scares. A lot of them are kind of in your face, yeah. uh, and obvious. And then there's some stuff that are just eerie. There's a part of the end yes, where Lucy yeah. is trying to save the girl from the house, and you see the mother kind of walk up the stairs in the background. And it's so eerie. That house is so creepy looking. And then the insane asylum that they go to at the end, yeah. where Frank starts experiencing, I think they call it like a, a residual haunting, where he's looking back in time at the actual mm-hmm. like murders that are happening. I thought that was really well done. Because it's really well done. Y- y- up until that point of the movie. They mentioned Charles Bartlett as a killer. 
you know that he is now the Grim Reaper, that they're one and the same, but you still haven't seen, he hasn't had a lot of screen time up until that point. The mystery, the veil of who the Grim Reaper actually is has been over you the whole mm-hmm. time. So it was a great way to show like why this guy's a scumbag, piece of crap, you know, that he, you can, you can hear that, oh, well, he killed 12 people in this hospital, but actually to go back and see like that doctor pleading for the lives of everyone before he shoots him in the chest with a shotgun, uh, just so, oh, yeah. just so, you know, carelessly, it was yeah. a real way to say like, Hey, this guy's an asshole. You and know? so there's some really, uh, beautiful moments, actually some beautiful cinematography, beautiful editing and how it's mixed with the music, uh, when they are in the asylum and going back and forth in time. And yeah. there's some really cool editing done there. It's almost not even editing where there will be a shot of the hallway camera pans and it, you know, it's modern times when it's all decrepit and everything and dark. Camera pans over. We see Michael J. Fox coming around a corner. We pan back to that hallway. Yeah, and it's we're in the 1950s. It's very cool. All it's all they've done is change the lighting and put some extras in there in mm-hmm. period clothing. You know, so much more clever than uh, a bunch of flashy CGI. Yeah, I, there was one really cool point where they did kind of do a CGI change where uh, the where uh, Patricia the um, young woman who's now an older woman with some mental issues is walking down the hallway. They, they show the younger actress playing her and then she, it kind of fades out and uh, the older version of her with a shotgun is walking right behind her. Yeah. And it was really a cool way to be like, Hey, this is the same character. This character you're seeing committing such atrocities back in the day is the same messed up character that up until this point in the movie, we've told, we've kind of hid the fact that she is troubled from you, you know? Yeah. Uh, because up until this point, the mystery of the movie has been, Hey, maybe the mother is the one who is, you know, really causing all this trouble. And it turns out, no, the mother's the one who's been holding it at bay to the best of her ability to that point. So, yeah. All right. Here's a question. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been to a medieval restaurant? Uh, I've been to Renaissance fairs, but I have not been to a medieval restaurant. I've got to go. I don't know where there is one. Yeah. But uh, I think it's funny that the movie, you know, goes there. And there's actually a line where um, Lucy's husband knocks over the glass of wine. And uh, and then as he's walking out, he goes like, you better watch out, Bannister. I can move shit now. Yeah. <laughs> which, oh, which is funny because the ghost in this movie apparently applied to uh, ghost rules. Have you ever seen, uh, well, ghost as far as the Patrick Swayze ghost movie goes, the same kind of like... I've never seen that, no. So in that movie, after Patrick Swayze's character dies, he meets a ghost in a subway. And the ghost lives there and he's really angry, but it's like his subway. And when he sees other ghosts here, he gets really mad. But for some reason, he takes Patrick Swayze's character and teaches him how to... Uh, move things like a poltergeist and basically the way is that you have to channel all of your anger into moving the thing so ghosts that move stuff around all the time are super angry that's why poltergeists are breaking stuff all the time so in this movie it also happens when he's really mad uh, the the health the health night guy what, what was his character's name I didn't catch it I don't even know if they mentioned it in the movie Ray Ray, Ray okay yeah, yeah Lucy's husband so when Ray knocks over that wine he's really pissed off and then he starts to realize like how you move things around is to get super angry. And it's weird because we don't see Ray die, but we see his ghost later on on the way to his funeral. We The, the one character that we do see die is uh, Frank Bannister when he uh, is is um, frozen mm-hmm. in, yeah. in the thing. And we start to re- see like how, how, how ghosts interact with stuff because he immediately just starts falling through the floor yeah, until consciously right. he can stop himself from doing that. So I thought mm-hmm. that was a pretty cool scene to kind of get the ghost rules out to you of how this stuff works. Yeah. He does a, Michael J. Fox does a really good job at acknowledging both humans and ghosts in the same scene. There's, mm-hmm. There is the moment at the Excalibur restaurant when uh, he's talking to Lucy and Ray is right there. And he's... Um, Obviously, it's going to be a special effect. It's going to be added later. Yeah. But it's it's not just that. It's in the scene as well. His character is doing... You can tell that he's operating between these two conversations. And the other... Both those people, both those other characters, the human and the ghost, both know it. And that's... Uh, 
That, that has to be well a hard thing to do. Yeah, to say yeah, like, okay, absolutely. you're 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 working with this other human being across from you, and then you kind of have to switch tone to talk to this person who's not there, and your eye line has to go between the two, and it's got to match up in post production. You yeah. know, so there's a lot of complicated shots. They they didn't make it easy for themselves to make this movie, but uh, I think it it mostly works. I mean, so there's a little bit of you know technology wasn't 100% where it, where it could have been back then for this kind of stuff, but it's it's minimal to me. It didn't ruin the experience for me. Yeah. Uh, here's something. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the music, whenever you want uh, you know, a horror or dark score as well as something that can be kind of lighthearted, I mean, there's no, no other composer than Danny Elfman. Yeah. You, and I think his Get score, me Elfman now. Yeah. It's really good. I, I kind of heard echoes of like, if you're familiar with his music, you always, you can... You can recognize it. He's not one of those composers who rescores himself all the time. Uh, he's always got unique and interesting themes in all of his films. And mm-hmm. I mean, you could sit there and hum any one of them. Yeah. And uh, this one, I kind of heard some echoes of his uh, score for Sleepy Hollow and Red Dragon. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with those scores, but sure. they're both very good, very different. And this one kind of, you could kind of hear some similarities in there. Sleepy so, Hollow is one of my, like, I watch that every October, you know, like maybe so October 1st, fun. I crank out Such Sleepy Hollow. It's, it's a lot of fun. I don't think it gets enough credit for i mean it's uh it's stylistically it's it's a tim burton movie you know but i don't know what the lasting cultural effects were but every time i watch the movie i enjoy it it's a lot like this one in the way that it's a mystery movie yeah. built around you know like who's controlling the the headless horseman and stuff like that but um yeah i noticed this movie there was a lot of harpsichord used uh, it was very distinct the score was definitely a big part of the movie it, guiding kind of this frenetic camera along it kind of matched everything but i don't know how you get Danny Elfman to score your movie about ghosts and then not use Oingo Boingo's Dead Man's Party at some point in the right? movie. You know, like, I mean, I get it, Don't Fear the Reaper because you had the Grim Reaper in it, but like at some point they should have, like, he should have gotten his car and Dead Man's Party should have been playing. Like, that That would have been really fun. So, yeah. But, uh, I mean, that's just a glaring oversight on Robert Zemeckis' part, in my mind. But, right. Yeah, it's weird. This movie, for some reason, reminds me a lot of Heavenly Creatures, I think, which was shot in New Zealand. It reminds me a lot of Dead Alive. Have you ever seen Dead Alive? I did. And I, it was the. Not the first thing I saw by him. I think it was the... I think Heavenly Creature... No, excuse me. This would have been the first Peter Jackson movie I saw. Then oh, Heavenly really? Creatures and then Dead Alive. And for whatever reason, I was thinking, okay, this is the guy who's doing Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is going to suck. And that was... I hadn't considered the fact that his earlier work was so tongue-in-cheek. And it's interesting that this guy has had the career that he has when those were the first impressions he was making on film goers. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think this might've been my first Peter Jackson movie as well. And then I, I jumped whenever I heard like, Oh, this is the guy who's doing Lord of the Rings. I was like, Oh, I think I like the Frighteners. Uh, I have to go check out heavenly creatures. And after I saw heavenly creatures, like, Oh, this is, this is a guy who knows how to do. Yeah. If, if you're looking at both of these films, heavenly creatures and the Frighteners, you know that you're going to be in for something of, of pretty good quality. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well of, you know, a distinct visual style. The guy is not afraid to make stuff look amazing. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the, the important part, him and Fran Walsh, they know how to write characters. They, oh, they, yeah. they know how to keep you and he, and actors work well with Peter Jackson. He's got a good way of working with actors and getting a good performance mm-hmm. out of them. It's funny because, um, the Frighteners was, you know, so it's such a CGI heavy movie. In fact, I think you mentioned earlier there were more at the time there were more yeah, computer generated shots in this film than there yep. had been any other film. Uh, so Weta Digital, his company, his production company, <clears throat> um, they actually started this movie on like one computer and had to bump it up to I don't even know. Well, one computer? Yeah, they did. They started really? doing this movie on one computer and then they had to up that exponentially mm-hmm. and. Um, didn't know what they were going to do with all this, all this gear, all this equipment, and all these utilities uh, in their production house. And so, about halfway through this movie, he started to say, "You know, I've always kind of wanted to do a fantasy film where 
What, what's like the best fantasy? Um, you, where where can we? Let's see. What is the best material in all of fantasy literature or film or whatever that we can uh, we can adapt here? And that is so. This was kind of the genesis of um, the Lord of the Rings films. And on top of that, kind of the whole fantasy comeback because up mm-hmm. into that point in time, like there were no fantasy movies, you know. And now fantasy is since Lord of the Rings, it's been pretty much in the public conscious for a long time. You've got Game of Thrones now. Like Dungeons and Dragons is making this weird kind of comeback. Like you're watching Stranger Things right now, right? Yeah, it just and, started. And D and D is kind of a big part of that as well. So, uh, yeah, this was kind of, I guess, his, his love of working with effects in this one and his desire to push that further. Lord of the Rings pushed special effects, like, maybe further than just about anything up into that point. I mean, well, not up into that point, but since Jurassic Park. And yeah, it's weird I to agree. see this movie as kind of the step between Jurassic Park and Lord of the Rings. And the Lord of the Rings movies are weird, too, because you see the first one doesn't have quite as much CG as mm-hmm. the like, third one. Yeah. Was, oh my God. That is like the movie that pushed like what the people were doing with green screens and stuff like that to that point to just another level. And I'll tell you what, it's a different conversation for a different day, but to it's always fascinates me and I enjoy talking about CGI and mm-hmm. how it works and how it doesn't work. Uh, we'll have to find a way to get into that at some point, but yeah. not right here. Well, it's weird to come in from a movie like Ghostbusters, which is such a practical effects movie, and then do this one, and they both deal with ghosts in different ways, you know, like Slimer and stuff like that was against a, you know, a black screen or whatever, and this was a really cool idea of having human care or a human actors play the ghosts, but kind of like put a little bit of makeup on them, you know, like reduce the opacity on them, you know, and all that, and, you know, make them translucent, but also kind of make the stuff behind them look different too. So it's, it was a really cool way of, of taking a real person and giving them a ghost performance and having them do that. So, yeah. You want to hear something else interesting? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, again, if I'm not mistaken, uh, between this and heavenly creatures, or it might've been during this, uh, Peter Jackson wanted to take his passion project that he'd always wanted to do, which was King Kong, and make that oh, his yeah. next make that his next work, and it was going to be a little bit more like kind of like an Indiana Jones type adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but he would, after Lord of the Rings, go on to do it, and it, he was basically remaking the original King Kong film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's I don't know. It's interesting that he decided to go with in this fantasy direction mm-hmm. with Lord of the Rings, then his passion project. Like, yeah. at what point does someone say, you know what this? This thing I've always wanted to do since I was a kid, I'm not going to do. I'm going to go for something else. You know, I, I think I could say thank God that was the choice he he made because you you wouldn't have gotten the Lord of the Rings films that you got at any other point in time. Right, right. Well, they had to perfect performance capture first. So, That's true, yeah. you know, they had to come along and have a guy like Andy Serkis perfect what a performance catcher actor a performance capture actor does, you know, cuz it's funny because Peter Jackson goes off and does Gollum and then Robert Zemeckis goes off and does the Polar Express. And they kind of differentiate and do two different things. And the Gollum was, you know, not trying to be photorealistic 100% to a human. You know, that's a, a creature uh, on screen. And he and Circus kind of perfect how to do characters like that. So then they had to do that before they could do King Kong and have Circus do the King Kong character in that movie. And Andy Circus has gone on to do the Planet of the Apes movie where I think it's just his performance capture stuff. It just, like... W- when Andy Serkis passes away, I think we're really going to realize all of a sudden like what yeah. we actually had with him and the ability he, he has to do characters like this. He's, he's one of a kind. It's like when people say Arnold Schwarzenegger is not a good actor. And then you see someone else try to play a Terminator and it just falls flat on its face. Like, yeah, 
Schwarzenegger might not be able to go out and like do Othello. I don't think that's you know what he wants to do or what his craft is in. But the guy knows what he's doing when he's playing like a machine or something like that. Like Andy Serkis is the guy who does performance capture. And whenever you try to get you know like a, a dime store Andy Serkis to come into your movie and do performance capture, you're going to realize real quick like oh nobody it's not just anybody that can do this. This guy and Peter Jackson have perfected this thing. So did you know there's a Sonic Youth song? In the Frighteners. Are you serious? Yeah, it's what called, is it? Sonic uh, Nurse? Yeah. Bull in the Heather? Superstar? Oh, oh, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Just uh, thought that was interesting. I, I, I don't know if I can... I don't know Superstar off the top of my head. I keep thinking of Cool Thing whenever I think of, of Superstar for some reason. Do you know of any other movies where there is a serial killer from beyond the grave who continues to do his work? No. I think there was a movie called Shocker. And I think the rapper Silk the Shocker <laughs> named himself really? after the killer in the movie. It's about this guy who is a, is a serial killer, and then he gets electrocuted, and then he comes back as electricity. And he'll like jump out of people's TVs and stuff. But it's funny because he's uh, uh, Bartlett, Charles Bartlett in this movie is also electrocuted, and his, you know, his ghost has like the burn marks on the top of his head from where they electrocuted him. And I think the Shocker comes yeah. out of TVs, and he's still got like his orange jumpsuit on and stuff like that. So I don't know if that was done on purpose or not. But I was thinking about the, you know, the fact that it's a pretty original concept. This person they want to continue killing from beyond the grave, so they come back as a ghost, and uh, you know, are aided out by a human being. So anyway, this movie's. I think it's very original. I think it pays a lot of homages to Ghostbusters, but there's really not a whole lot like it other than, you know, maybe like the Evil Dead movies, you know, uh, just in in terms of tone and the humor and stuff like that, even though Evil Dead's a little bit more slapstick, but it's kind of got that cartoony aspect to it. But going back and rewatching it the other day, do you, did it, did it hold up to what you remembered it as, you know? It actually, I was just like you in the sense that when I saw the movie, I uh, thought it was fantastic and thought that for many, many, many years. And then uh, saw it at some point, maybe in the last, like, I don't know, between five and ten years. And it mm-hmm. just, it didn't really do all that much for me. And now I'm watching it again and I just find it to be a, such a fun movie. Yeah. It's yeah. a fun, ambitious movie with good ideas, good performances. And uh, yeah, there's there's really no point that this movie doesn't work for me. Yeah, yeah. I think it was something about the mindset I had going into it. But this time when I watched it, I was like, okay, this is fun. This is not taking itself seriously at all. And I think whenever I watched it before, I think it was in a very, very serious mood, which you can't be when you watch something like The Frighteners. But I thought its ability to take kind of like cartoon physics, cartoon logic, and apply it to a pretty good mystery story worked very well. And apparently it worked really well when, when Peter Jackson showed his his cut to Universal. They loved it so much that they moved the production schedule up like four months. So yeah, that's true. It, Go ahead. So, Ralphie, uh, if someone's a fan of Ghostbusters and they haven't seen The Frighteners, would you suggest to them to go see The Frighteners? Absolutely. Yeah, me as well. Me as well. Uh, I think that you, you you do have to have a different mindset going in, that this movie is over the top and it chews on the scenery on purpose because it's it's like a live action cartoon. But if you like some of Peter Jackson's other stuff, if you're into Ghostbusters and you kind of ha- come at this from the right angle to, of approach, I think it's it's a very, very enjoyable movie. And it got, upon its release, it was it wasn't that much of a box office success. Right, um, yeah. But it was a critical success. Yes. It got pretty much positive reviews across the board, and it's, yeah. got, it's got a huge cult following. So yeah. I think that that says more about a film's, um, I don't know, worth, 
then it's, yeah. it's critical reception and it's fan reception. If it uh, has legs, if it's something people are, are yeah. still talking about. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's it. If you don't have anything else to say about it, I honestly feel like we could talk about this movie more, but I think I'd be talking in circles, kind of talking about it, giving it some praises yeah. that we have before. So it's, yeah, get out there and see it. There's a lot to love about this movie. Some really over-the-top performances, but it's it's like a live-action cartoon, and I, I really loved it. I yeah. really enjoyed my time with it. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone have a great Friday. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And we're here to remind you that death is but a door, time a window. We'll be back.